Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So all summer long, I didn't feed out any crickets. We weren't. That summer's usually when I use my roach colonies. I think I've explained this in a, a previous podcast. My bilateralis roaches, the males population will explode. I feed out a lot of males. You're like can, comparable to the size of crickets. Anyway, no crickets all summer. And I had it so good for the podcast because I never had the issue of a cricket escaping and making noise in the background. And then yeah, this week we got crickets. I fed yesterday. Billy and I did a feeding video. For YouTube, we did a lot of feeding, and then when we were done, I'm like, oh, no, I'm not supposed to feed the day before I do a podcast because then I'm going to have crickets chirping in the background because somebody inevitably escapes and makes some noise in the background. Long story short, I get up here. I'm ready to record. I remove, I take the cricket bin, and I put it downstairs so that you don't hear the crickets in the bin in the background, and I stop and listen, and I'm like, wow, there's no crickets. This is awesome. And then as I'm getting ready to do the podcast, I noticed a couple of my spiders that had molted and I wanted to throw, I I have this thing where as soon as I noticed they molted and they're skinny, I want to feed them. So I grabbed the crickets again, brought them back up. And as I was feeding them two crickets, I dropped them in the enclosure. They bounced out and escaped. So I'm like, oh God, here we go. They're going to be in the background. But no, I'm doing my notes for the podcast. Everything is quiet. I'm like, this is perfect. I sit down. I connect the microphone. I open up my recording software. I open my mouth to speak. I swear the moment my mouth opened, a cricket started going in the background. So I'm going to apologize in advance. I am going to try to, I I can never tell if I'm able to edit it out or not. Sometimes I do it and I don't feel like I hear them. I haven't had anybody complain about it. Not that anybody complained. Usually it was a joke that they were listening in their car and thought they had a cricket in their car or their houses. So again, apologies in advance. If we have some cricket action in the background, I thought we were going to get away with it this week, but apparently not. So this episode, to start off, we have to make a major announcement about a new species. Well, basically a species that's been in the hobby for quite some time, but it has been officially described. And I'm so excited about it because this doesn't happen all that often. It's I love when we get these, there's so many species in the hobby that's a genus and then species whatever. So Kilo Rockies, species Electric Blue is no more, which I'm kind of sad about because I love the name Electric Blue. It is now Kilo Brockies, Natanicarum. Natanicarum. We're going to go with that. And the I'm hoping that for a common name, because now it has a real name, for a common name, we keep Electric Blue or Electric Boogaloo because it just has a great ring to it. I don't know. I've, I used to refer to mine as my Electric Boogaloo's. Obviously, somebody that lived in the 80s at some point, but that's awesome. And I love that when something like this happens there. Now, I just hope that somebody jumps over on Formictopus. I'd love to have some actual described Formictopus species instead of the, I don't know what I'm up to now, 10 undescribed species or whatever, but really cool situation. I was going to do a video about it, but everybody jumped right on it. So the word's getting out. This is your notification. If you haven't received it yet, my buddy Luis sent me the text with it and I was so excited sitting in school and open up like, Ooh, Hey, this is a good one. So Kilo Brockies electric species, electric blue is now Kilo Brockies Natanicarum. That's how I'm pronouncing it. And if I'm wrong, so be it. But anyway, really cool stuff there. Today, obviously, if you've looked at the header of this or the title of this podcast, we're going to be talking a bit about Eupalastris campistratus or the pink zebra beauty and the PBZ. And the reason why we're going to be talking about this species is because I have on good authority that somebody's going to be getting some slings in. And I know I've had a lot of people ask me about them. It's that the PBZ are one of these ones that seem to come around like every three years or so. It's the weirdest thing. It's like we get them for a little while, people buy them all up, and then they disappear. And then I get tons of 
emails and comments on my YouTube videos. Hey, do you know anybody that has these? Because I think some people think I have like this secret pipeline to get anything I want. And I really don't. I'm not in touch with what people are selling. Sometimes people will let me know, hey, by the way, you were talking about this species. And I know for a fact this vendor is going to have them in. That's how I find out. I don't really have any pipeline usually. Uh, In this case, I did have a pipeline. (laughs) I did find out somebody was getting them in. So I don't want to mention who it is yet because the fact that, God forbid, the import doesn't come through or whatever, I don't want to put anybody in a spot, but they are going to be out there, and usually when one person gets them in, some other people get them in, so I'm expecting that in the next month or so, you'll be seeing these offered, and they are something that if you have any interest in them whatsoever, grab them now. I think I shared the story about how on my birthday, Billy and I went to visit a pet store in Massachusetts. We can't, they can't sell tarantulas in pet stores in Connecticut. So we drove, we found one in Massachusetts that had a fairly decent collection of slings. And she bought me a bunch of slings. And as we were shopping for the slings, the guy in there is like, Hey, I got something here. You probably really like, he's like, it's an E Campistratus. So I'd never heard of it. I didn't recognize the name. I had heard of pink zebra beauty before, but at this point I had made the turn into keeping old world species for the most part. And he's like, yeah, these are really sought after. I can give this one to you for like 25 bucks. And it was an amazing price for a tarantula that was really difficult to come by. I didn't realize it at the time. And I'm like, nah, I'm good. Thank you. And didn't get it. And boy, did I kick myself afterwards. A, I realized when I went home and looked it up, I'm like, oh no, this is one I've actually been looking for. I wasn't, I still at this point wasn't great with the common name or with the scientific names. So I didn't recognize the scientific name immediately or else I probably would have snatched it right up because I had been planning on doing a video about the best beginner species for quite some time. And I had heard many people have told me PZB definitely should be high up on that list. They're amazing. A lot of folks talking about how they're super laid back, tractable, and people would handle them all that good stuff, and I missed out on it. So I'm like, well, that's okay. I'm sure somebody will have them. Well, somebody didn't have them for several years. And then finally, in I think it was October of 2016, I was able to pick a couple up. I believe I got them from Fear Not Tarantulas. They're about a half inch or 1.27 centimeters, maybe a little bit small, little teeny guys. And I was so excited to have them because now I finally had the last species that I needed to put together my what was going to be my video on the best beginner species. So I was really excited to have them. And I had seen pictures of them. I'd been looking at them for quite some time, admiring other people's. And I really wanted one because I had made that shift back to keeping some of the quote unquote beginner species. We talked about the beginner stigma. I got caught up in beginner stigma. Like why would I keep a beginner species when I'm keeping, I don't know, baboon species or Pisolotheria, whatever it may be. I finally got my head out of my posterior and started going back and buying some of those ones that I felt were beneath me at some point. So Was really excited to get them. Now, for setups, because I'm thinking these are going to be slings. A lot of you guys are going to have slings. I'm going to explain what, uh, how I set them up, what happened, and then what I would do differently this time. And that's something I always try to do with my care and with my care videos. I was very happy because before I went to put the notes together for this, I knew I did a video on them and I was hoping that I had put some of this stuff in the video so that it wasn't dated. Because sometimes I go back and watch videos like, ah, I need to add to that. That wasn't the best way to do it. And I certainly did some things that I would do differently if I were to keep them again. So I picked up the slings October 2016. Originally, I had them both in the AMAC box enclosures. These are the ones that are the little clear plastic boxes are about 2.25 inches by 2.25 inches by about 4.25 inches in depth or 5.7 by 5.7 by 10.8 centimeters. So I used to use these for all of my slings. I had very good luck. I think we we figured out I had kept at one point 
it was around 50 slings in these Amac boxes over the years, and I had only lost one. So I had very good luck with the Amac boxes. I included about two inches of moist substrate. I believe what I did at the time is I had the lower levels moist, put a little a top layer of dry stuff, and made little starter burrows in there. And I gave them cork bark hides, a little pinch of moss, and put the little guys in there. Now, what they did was immediately they burrowed. When I say burrow, we're not talking like a little burrow down the side. We're talking they buried, they burrowed all the way down the corner, all the way to the bottom level, so two inches down, and then dug out this intricate series of tunnels that went up the side. almost looked like an anthill. If you picture the or an ant farm that you'd get as a kid with the plastic things where they dig the tunnels, that's kind of what it looked like when you turned the enclosure around. These tunnels going all over the up to the top, back down to the bottom, through the middle. Sometimes I had a hard time locating the little slings in there because I didn't know where they were in the tunnels and it was freaking me out. Now, this wouldn't have been an issue at all by itself, but unfortunately, when they started doing it, I was a little bit afraid that they'd bury themselves to the point that they wouldn't be able to find food. Now, at first, I was using pre-killed. I had some red uh, runner nymphs I was putting in there. I had little teeny red runner nymphs for a little while. And then when those got a little too big, I was pre-killing red runner roaches or putting in pre-killed crickets. They would come up to the top of their tunnel. They'd grab them. They'd eat. No problem. And then they both went into pre-molt, and they filled in all the tunnels. So if you look down at the surface, there were no entrances or exits to the tunnels. They went down beneath. And in one case, the spider actually molted in the corner where I could see it, which was great because I recognized that after a couple weeks went by, it wasn't coming up to get food. It had filled up the top of its burrow. It wasn't coming up. The other one, I could not see it. I couldn't tell when it molted. I couldn't tell if it molted, if it was ready to eat. So it was a little bit confounding. And I realized at that point that I probably had a situation in which they weren't planning on coming back up after they molted. I've mentioned before that I've experienced this with a few slings from different species. It happened with the G. pulchra. It happened most notably with a P. muticus, with my P. muticus slings. It's happened a few times over the years. And this was one of the situations where, I mean, when we say they tunneled, it originally started with about two inches of substrate. By the time they were done, that substrate was up to the top of the lower part of it, so about three, three and a half inches deep. That's how much dirt they pulled up and deposited on the surface. So when they filled those things in, some of the tunnels they filled in with like an inch of dirt. They had no idea anything was up there. I was putting live prey in, little live red runner nymphs. I was putting in tiny, I even went out and got some tiny crickets to go up there so they hopefully would feel the, or sense a little pitter-patter of their little cricket feet or the little roach feet, and that would entice them to come up. It didn't work. So what I ended up having to do is I would locate where the entrance of one of the burrows was. They plugged up. I would carefully moisten that area down, use the back of a paintbrush or a toothpick, and carefully push the dirt away and stack it up on the side so it didn't fall in and fill in the hole. And then once I'd opened it up, what I would do is pre-kill an item and leave it right in the top. And what I found is when I first did this in both cases, they both came up and ate immediately. And then from that point on, they kept things open for a little bit. But every time for a couple molts, every time they molted, they would close everything back up. And I had a very difficult time figuring out once again when when they were in pre-molt, when they actually molted, when they were ready to eat again. So I remember one instance... I was shining the flashlight in. I saw the spider. It was gangly and super thin. And I realized it had probably molted a little while back and hadn't eaten yet. So I started to freak out. So things I would do differently if I were to keep them again, I would use dram vials for the smaller ones. I mean, these guys were about, I think they were a little bigger than a third of an inch. Again, around a half, we'll say around a half inch. They might've been a little bit smaller, but I would definitely use dram vials. I would make sure not to put in too, too much substrate in the bottom 
a little pinch of sphagnum. I found that if I'm, I don't want them to bury themselves until I can't see them, I use the sphagnum, New Zealand sphagnum moss trick where I use the uh, sprig of sphagnum moss. So I might put in maybe a three quarters of an inch of moist substrate and then put like a half an inch of sphagnum on the top. And a lot of times what the little slings will do is they'll, they'll tunnel in the sphagnum moss a little bit into the dirt and it's not quite so deep that they can get lost. I've, I've had pretty good luck with that. But if you use just regular substrate, just be mindful of the fact that if you have, say, a dram bile that's three inches deep and you drop in, say, two inches of substrate or 5.08 centimeters of substrate, that if that sling goes down and burrows and brings that stuff up, it's going to end up pretty deep. So that's something to just keep an eye on. If you can see your sling, it, it's fine because you'll recognize when it molts you give it a few days and then if it doesn't come up carefully open it up put something dead never drop anything live in there into the hole don't open up the hole and drop something live in you never know drop something dead up the top and usually what you'll see is you come back the next day it's gone and it is eaten so that's what something I would definitely change if I were to do this again is I would put them in smaller containers so that I could keep a better eye on them and so that they could more easily find the prey but it did work out luckily I figured out what was going on I had already experienced this with another with the P. muticus so I was able to make sure that they got fed so that's something I would do if you get the little ones if these come out you pick some up definitely be cognizant of the size of the enclosure. People always ask me, can you put them in something bigger? You can, but it can make it difficult for you to A, know where the spider is, and especially when they go in the pre-molt, whether they molted or not, and B, it can make it difficult for the spider to find the sling. That's why we keep things in smaller enclosures. So once mine hit juvenile size, and we're talking about at this point, they were about 1.5 centimeters or 3.8 centimeters. It was time for a rehousing. I wanted to get them into something different. So what I ended up doing is in February of 2018, so we're talking roughly a year and a half or so, a little more than a year and a half after I first got them, it was time to rehouse them. So we got decent growth rate from that. It took them, if I remember correctly, they were teeny tiny until they hit, like many of the slower growing species, teeny tiny until they hit about three quarters of an inch or so. And at that point, they seem to put on decent size with each molt. So they put on a lot, all of a sudden it's like, ooh, these are actually little juveniles now. So at that point, what I rehoused them into was some acrylic enclosures. They're about 16 ounces. They're clear acrylic. I still have some of them. I have my Afonopelma species in them. But they were about 4.25 inches in diameter and 4.25 inches or four and a quarter inch deep or 10.8 by 10.8 centimeters. And I once again gave them about two inches of substrate, cork bark hide, some little starter burrows, a little water bottle cap for a water dish. And once again, I put them in there. They immediately took to the starter burrows. They did some digging. This time, though, they were bigger. The enclosures were a bit more shallow compared to their actual leg span. So I had no issue with them burying themselves to the point where they couldn't find their prey. I put them in. They buried. They had enough room to do a little bit of burying, burrowing and make themselves little hides, little dens. But they were able to recognize when things were on the surface. And at that point, I was feeding them medium roaches, medium crickets. I believe in that stage, I even was using some mealworms, and they had no problem with them. And then once again, with the slings, I kept part of the substrate moist at all times. With juveniles, I tried to keep the bottom layers moist. I do have to point out, and one of the things you kind of can do to see if something wants moisture is if you give them moist substrate in the bottom layer and put dry on top, give them a starter burrow, you'll see some of them will go to that starter burrow. They will crave, they will want that moist, moist environment. 
and they will dig down and build their burrow in the moist part. So I did see that with these guys. They seem to like to burrow down to get that moisture level that they needed. So I wanted to give them that opportunity as juveniles. And again, I would let things dry out a little bit in between, but never for too long. And then I'd moisten everything down again. And they seem to do just fine like that. As for the water dishes, I had caught them drinking before, but they would also take the water dishes, flip them over, fill them with dirt. And in a couple cases, make the water dishes part of their den. So keep in mind, if you do put the water dishes in there, and I do encourage it, that you're gonna, it's going to be one of the species that you're going to be fighting to keep that water dish clean and filled. Now, as I spoke about earlier, they took a while to put on size, so I th- to to get a decent amount of size. So in my mind, I'm thinking these guys are very slow growing. We're thinking in my mind, this is like an Afana Pelma or Brachy Pelma, but that wasn't the case. Once they hit again three quarters of an inch, we'll say an inch, that magic inch spot. We'll go right around there. They really started putting on a lot of size with each molt. So although they were only about an inch and a half when I put them in those little round juvenile enclosures, it wasn't long before I had to move them again. So could I have gotten away with one less rehouse and put them in something bigger to begin with when they were juveniles? Yes, but again, I was trying to prevent them from burrowing too deeply. If I used a bigger enclosure, I was afraid they would burrow too deeply and would have the same issue again with not knowing where they were and not knowing whether they ate or not having them surface to eat. So that's why I picked something a little smaller. I'd rather err on the side of caution in this case, and it worked out. So we rehoused them again in March, around March of 2019. At that point, I moved them both into one of the Sistema 1830 Clip It 101 ounce or three liter enclosures. I use these for a lot of my juveniles. I love them. I included a few inches of moist substrate. Once again, cork bark hide, moss, water dish, the whole shebangabang. Now, at this point, the male continued to do some burrowing. He burrowed down a little bit. I, I didn't give them a lot of substrate to burrow in, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The female was not burrowing too much. She was digging, but she was kind of just moving dirt from one end to the other, filling a water dish, stacking all the dirt up on one side, then stacking all the dirt up on another side. In my mind, she, at that time, she just was outgrowing the burrowing. I had read that this was a terrestrial species, that they're already out in the open, and therefore I just decided she had gotten to that point in her life cycle where she no longer wanted to burrow. However, as I've spent more time in the hobby raising the so-called terrestrial species, these are the ones you throw in something with a little cork bark hide and a couple inches of dirt, and they're supposedly happy, I found that a lot of them will continue to do some burrowing right on through adulthood if given the means and the depth to do so. So this was a situation that when I rehoused her, I got my answer as far as was she not burrowing because the enclosure didn't offer enough adequate room to burrow or had she given it up. We'll get to that in a moment. But the male did try to burrow a little bit. And then I know he was a male because my male matured out in mid-2020. So it took him about four years or so to reach adulthood. And then I sent him off the breed. You know what? I don't know if he ever actually did the deed or what. I got to check on that now that I think about it. I don't think it was successful, but I'm not sure. I got to double check. But anyway... That isn't, it was about four years, a little over four years for the male to reach adulthood. So growth-wise, when I look at it, you know, hindsight's 2020, when I look back at it, they actually grew fairly quickly overall, especially when compared to the other beginner species. Now, I'm sure some folks will probably have said they had much faster growth. I'm sure some folks will have said they had slower growth, but I would put them more in the medium range once you get them out of that tiny sling stage. So we talk about, again, doing stuff differently. 
And that's something I always try to re-examine when I raise something up. Is there something I should have done a little differently? And this, once again, I would have definitely have put them into something a little deeper so that they could burrow more. My female had stopped burrowing. Um, unfortunately, when I put her into her adult enclosure, she immediately burrowed again because it was enough substrate to do so. So that tells me that the setup that I had was not adequate for her to exercise those burrowing tendencies. Now, we can talk about whether, and I've explained my theory on this a million times, tarantulas adapt. All tarantulas, even the fossorial Old world species will adapt to a more terrestrial lifestyle if they're not given the room to burrow, you know, the adequate room to burrow, the adequate substrate depth to burrow. They will web up on the surface. That's when you get more behavior issues because they're more out in the open. You're ripping the top of the enclosure off. You're ripping the webbing off. They freak out. Not a good situation. So can we keep these ones like terrestrials and will some of them seem to be very relaxed? Yes. Let's call it as it is. There's many species out there. Again, those so-called beginner species that if not given room to burrow, it's not that much of a big deal. They'll just adapt to life on the surface. Either they'll use a hide or they'll just sit out in the open. They seem to be rather calm and content. However, I hate to have a situation where the spider does that, but if I gave it the room to burrow, it would have burrowed. I always like to give them the room if they need to. That's a, I wouldn't say a newer thing, but over the last several years, it's something I've strived towards more, which is why I've cycled out some of my older enclosures that I used to use because they didn't have what would one of them is like the exoterra breeding boxes. They're nice looking enclosures. They stack. They're well ventilated. Have a lot of nice perks. The bottom of them is too shallow for my taste. They just it, it, something's got to be a true terrestrial for that. It really offers it no room to hide, no depth to feel secure. So I've moved away from them. That's something I've done. So these are spiders that I would say at every stage of their life, you want to make sure you're giving them that choice to burrow. And that's just my two cents. I'm sure some folks will be like, well, I want to see it. I'm not going to. Maybe the spider will be just fine. I don't know, but I will say I gave my female the room to burrow and she's taken advantage of it. So if I were to do it again when I did that move, when I put them into the Sistema enclosures, I would definitely put them into something that was much deeper. The Sistema enclosures offer a decent amount of floor space. They're 9 inches by 6.5 inches by 4.5 inches deep or 22.9 by 16.5 by 10.4 centimeters unfortunately it's at 4.5 inches of depth that's not enough room for a, spy, a spider that wants to do some burrowing so what i would do differently probably have put them into something that offered a bit more depth for burrowing at least six inches or 15.25 centimeters of depth for the enclosure and then given them probably three or four inches of substrate so those m design ones i use are about a you know 14 inches by what is it eight by eight or so or seven by seven i guess around that one of those would have probably made more sense and would have avoided an extra rehousing later on. They would have had plenty of room there. Again, you just had to, would have had to make sure that when they went to pre-molt, they filled it, they filled in the burrows that they were coming up to eat. So again, male matured 2020. The female at that time was about an inch or 2.54 centimeters smaller than him. He was a bit bigger and more gangly, so she was not ready to be paired. And honestly, I don't think I would have paired him anyway. She was a little small, and it still jeeves me out, you know, reading about pairing a male or a brother and sister together so I probably wouldn't have done it anyway so I did send him off the female on the other hand obviously stayed with me put on some more size and it was finally time to get her into her adult home so I think I rehoused her in January of 2021 so a little over four years after I first got her at this point she had hit the 4.5 inch or 11.42 centimeter mark so she was 
she was a young adult or an adult. And at that point, I decided to put her into one of the Gary plastic, clear plastic boxes, which measure about 8.5 inches by 8.5 inches by 12.5 inches or 21.6 by 21.6 by 31.75 centimeters. And I included four to five inches of substrate or 10.16 to about 12.7 centimeters, moist on the bottom, dry up top. I think at that point I was using the BioDude stuff, but any type of you know dirt or cocoa fiber, peat, cocoa fiber, peat. I use I like to mix them together to get the best properties of all of them. Would work fine. Gave her a nice big water dish. She had some New Zealand sphagnum moss around. I put some leaf litter in because at that point I was using the leaf litter because I liked the looks of it. And she burrowed immediately. So this was my answer about whether she just gave up burrowing because she was done with it. She had outgrown it or whether she gave up burrowing because she just didn't have adequate room to do so. It was obvious that she didn't have adequate room because this girl dug. She dug down the under the starter burrow in the cork bark and then ended up coming up in a corner of it. And then there was another tunnel that went another way. So once again, extensive tunneling. This wasn't, I'm going to dig myself a little modest high. This was, I'm going to dig myself a some catacombs, honestly. It was a lot of digging, a lot of burrowing. So she definitely wanted to continue burrowing. And I'm glad that I finally gave her room to do so. Now, she originally had a burrow with an entrance and exit. Recently, she molted and came up. She was super skinny. It freaked out because she had gone down. She had webbed up, closed up one burrow entrance or exit, and then the other one she had webbed up. And finally, she came up. I saw she was super skinny, so I was fattening her up. I dropped a couple roaches in, a couple crickets. She fattened up, and then she basically dug up the middle of the enclosure and created this new burrow entrance that honestly looks like a giant anthill. It's amazing, super cool. And she spends most of her time nowadays hiding. So a word about temperament. When I first heard about these guys, probably about 12, 13 years ago when I was doing some research, and they were often mentioned in beginner species lists, I had heard they were super docile, laid back. They kind of described them along the lines of the H. Chalensi. Everything you heard about them at that point was that they were super slow-moving, docile, handleable, inquisitive. And I'm not going to say mine are not laid back. They are to a point. But my female, basically, if, like right now, let me look over. Right now, she's sitting at the top of her little volcano she made. If I take the enclosure down, she goes right into her burrow and hides. So not really the pet rock that some people describe them as. And I have a funny feeling it was because folks were keeping them terrestrially. They weren't giving them the room to burrow. As far as I'm concerned, this young lady is is a fossorial tarantula. This isn't a little burrow she's got. This is quite an impressive collection of tunnels and entrances and exits. So I would say she's fossorial. And as most fossorials do, when they're caught out in the open, I think when some spiders, some of the more laid back ones are kept terrestrially, when you open the enclosure, you won't get a threat posture. They'll kind of just scrunch down into that almost stress pose and hope you don't do anything to them. You don't see them. It's almost like little kids. They cover their eyes like I'm invisible. It's like that. And I think that's probably what she would do if she didn't have room to dig. But because she can dig, she just calmly goes over. She doesn't bolt. She doesn't run. She just goes over and carefully go, you know, climbs down into her burrow. So that's something I would like to throw out there for people who are looking at these slings. Are they worth it still? Absolutely. And remember, uh, the temperaments and the behaviors can always vary from specimen to specimen. So I am positive there are going to be people out there that go, I have an adult female and she doesn't burrow at all. And I 100% believe you. I'm just saying that mine 
does continue to burrow, does exhibit fossorial tendencies. Perhaps there are other ones out there that aren't so fossorial, that are out in the open, that are laid back, that are tractable. I just want to put that out there because I know there's a lot out there. And even some of this stuff I wrote because I was going by what other keepers told me that these guys are spiders that are very laid back. And again, laid back, but shy. Very, very shy. That would probably be the biggest thing. Mine did go through a skittish stage, but looking back at it, it was when they were in those clip-it enclosures that they couldn't quite dig real well, uh, dig in real well. So I think a lot of it came from that, that I would open up, they kind of skitter around, try to hide, and then just scrunch up in a corner. So my advice, give them room to dig, obviously, as slings. Just don't overdo it. Same thing with juveniles. Give them room to dig. Don't overdo it. And then as adults or young adults, give them several inches let them dig. If they don't, great. If they do, again, it's so worth it when you catch them out and about. Now, as feeding as adults, very simple. They're great eaters and they have been great eaters since they've, you know, I think they probably would have been great eaters as slings if I had small enough prey items, didn't have to feed them pre-kill most of the time. But as uh, juveniles, young adults, no issues hunting. They were t- adults, I my female, I drop in like four or five crickets and it's fun watching her burst out of her burrow and grab them all. I even fed her be dubious, so she's one of the ones that will eat be dubious, no problem. So no issues there. Locusts would work. Mealworms, superworms, all the common prey items. I know I, I've got the things I use, but there are other stuff out there that folks use like the mealworms or overseas the locusts, which we can't get over here, those would all work fine. As far as frequency, back when it was a sl- they were slings, again, I always fed my slings at least two times a week. As juveniles, it was one time a week. As adults, it was usually once every other week. Now I feed my girl like once a month or so, several crickets or a nice big juicy roach, and that's about it. I've really cut back on the frequency. I don't, I try not to, I don't see, I want to say overfeed them, but I've just chosen to have a less aggressive feeding schedule for most of my specimens. The only time that differs is again, when one of them molts and I see them and they're thin, I don't like, I hate the way they look when they're all skinny after a molt. So I do fatten them up a little bit. And then as soon as I see they got a little weight on them, a little size, a little girth to their abdomens, then I ease back a little bit. Now, temperatures. When I got mine as slings, it was back in a time period where I did not have supplemental heat in my old tarantula room. So temperatures in the wintertime would sometimes drop in the evening to the mid to high 60s, so around 18 degrees Celsius. Summer highs, it was usually 70s to maybe 80 degrees or so, so 24.4 to 26.7 Celsius, so not particularly warm temperatures. I mean, some are pretty warm. Winter, it was cooler. So keep in mind, and I always have to say this, higher temperatures will often lead to faster metabolisms and faster growth rates. I just had somebody come on, and I always post on my YouTube videos the temperatures I keep my spiders at. And it's there clear as day that they're in the 70s in the wintertime. And back in the day, they were even in the 60s. I had somebody come on. I don't understand why yours grow so slowly. Mine grew this fast. So I said, what are the temperatures? Oh, 85 degrees all year round. Well, there you go, buddy. That's going to be why they grow faster. It will, with those higher temperatures, a lot of them, they'll eat, they'll grow faster, they'll molt with more frequency. So that's something to keep in mind. So somebody that's keeping theirs on the warmer side, the folks you know live in areas where the temperatures don't drop as much and they maintain 80 degrees degrees or higher, you're probably going to see faster growth rates. All in all, with even the lower temps, mine still grew fairly quickly overall. I mean, if you think about it, it only took four years for them to go from teeny tiny slings to looking like the pink zebra beauty, the PZBs that we all know and love. And speaking of pink zebra beauties, just to throw it out there, they have 
pink hairs on them. They have the pinkish tinge to them, but they're not really they pink. I did they did go through a stage. I think it was right around the three and a half, four inch mark where they were more the most pink I think they've ever been. Now my female, she just molted. The overall coloration of them is like a brownish coloration with some striping. They're really, really beautiful looking spiders. And then those long sea tie all over the body and the legs and everything have that pinkish tinge to them. It's not like a super vibrant pink, but it's definitely a pinkish tinge. So they really are just awesome looking spiders. And a note on adults, could you, I obviously have mine in those enclosures. Other things that would probably work well, the Exoterra, what is it, minis, the 12 by 12 by 12 inch or 30.5 by 30.5 by 30.5 centimeter ones that are very popular could work for one. Unfortunately, they have the shallow, more shallow litter dam in the front where they have the opening door in the front. So what you would probably want to do is angle the substrate back so it's higher in the back of the enclosure and create something with a cork bark so the spider could still burrow in there. I did this with my M. robustum and the big spider. She's probably about seven and a half inches now, seven, seven and a half inches. And it worked great with her where I angled it down the front so I could still open the door and not have the dirt cover it. But there's enough room in the back for her to bury and create a nice burrow system. So that would work. The barbarous growth, five or 10 gallons would work fine. Uh, something along those sides, you could do a bigger enclosure that I use there and probably create quite a nice setup. Give her a couple, you know, if you did something around the 10 gallon size, maybe give her a, a burrow on both ends to pick from, to choose from, maybe some plants to get them out and about. That's something that sometimes entices tarantulas to come out. And that's something I don't currently have in her enclosure, which may be one of the reasons why she doesn't come out as much. If you put some extra plants in there, fake or real, it sometimes gives them cover. They will venture out more, but Amazing spiders. I do hope that when they come out, some folks pick them up. And I do want to hear from you if you pick them up. And feel free to ask any questions. This is about the biggest thing I can tell you is just watch them as slings. I'm assuming, again, that the ones that are going to be offered are going to be on the smaller end. If that's the case, don't put them in something that they're swimming in because then you have to be extra attentive to recognize. And it can be stressful. When this happens, you're always freaking out that you're going to disturb the spider mid-mold. When I'm digging one up, if I can't see it and it's been a while and I think it might have molted and I can't see if it did or not and you're opening up, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, what if at this very moment this spider has flipped over and is molting? And it freaks you out. So that would be one spot I'd change as far as the husbandry. The other spot, definitely giving them depth all through their life cycle so that they can go ahead and have that ability to burrow. And I would love to hear from folks. And this is important because this is just, when I do one of these, this is my perspective. I've kept two of these. Uh, That's not a huge indicator of what they're uh, uh, like in the world at large. So I would love to hear other folks. Did yours burrow through adulthood? Did you give yours a chance to burrow through adulthood? Are they terrestrial? What are you seeing as far as behaviors? please chime in on it. I would love to hear from you because that just adds more information for somebody looking into them. But again, they're going to be out. I don't know how much they're going to cost, but I would say if it's, if you're even remotely interested, grab one now or you're going to be regretting it later because if history repeats itself, once these sell out, it's going to be another three to four years before we see them in the U.S. again. I'm not sure. Maybe overseas. And again, folks overseas, let me know through the comments, what you think or what you've seen, are they offered more often overseas or is it like that with you guys as well that you see them for, you know, offered for six months and then they disappear never to return again for another four years or three or four years. Let me know. 
So moving ahead, hopefully these, when they come out, what I will probably do is mention it in my next podcast with a link so that folks know where to buy them. If more than one place has them, I'll put them up so that everybody knows where to get these because they are, I think personally speaking, (laughs) having passed these over before, I recognize that I screwed up and I'm trying to prevent others from doing so. And I will say that of all the spiders that I posted up, all the tarantulas I've done husbandry videos for podcasts on, the Ecampistratus is the one that I get the most requests for slings. Like, And by that, I mean people saying, hey, Tom, I can't find these anywhere. Can you please tell me where to get some? So hopefully we're going to fill that void pretty soon, get some of these out there. So that will do it for the main part of our podcast here. I don't know if you guys can hear it again, but that cricket started up in the background. Oh, my Lord. Speaking of the crickets, I do, I think I mentioned this before, I do plan on trying the vermiculite trick. I had some folks come on, talk about it. I just haven't done it yet. I had somebody ask me, have you tried the vermiculite thing? I'm getting it. I have to buy a new bag of vermiculite. There's this place, a farm store, not far from me that sells these big bags of it. I don't like to buy the little bags. They go too quickly and they're expensive as heck, but they sell like... I don't know how big they are. Big, big bags of them. And I'm going to get one of those. So again, because mine's almost out and I do like to mix it sometimes with the substrate. And I do want to try a layer of it with the crickets and see how it works. I know last time, three weeks ago, I picked up crickets. And of course, it seems like every time I go to pick up crickets, it's a rainy, humid day. And humidity kills crickets so quickly. So they're shipped in a box to the place I get them from. By the time I get them home, they're already, the clock's ticking. And I'm trying to feed them out as fast as possible before they all die. And luckily this time it was dry. It was raining, but then the rain stopped. It got dry quickly. So they've been doing okay, but definitely going to try that in the future. All right. So that will do it for this episode. As always, you can find me on tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on Tom's Big Spiders, the podcast. You can find me on YouTube. As I mentioned earlier, Billy and I post a feeding video. I, I try not to do a ton of feeding videos, but they're a great way to get people to come to the channel that may not be immediately enticed by the more educational stuff. Uh, it's a fun way to show off species that I don't necessarily show off that much. And what I will do often is people will constantly be asking me for updates on certain species that don't necessarily warrant an entire video. But when I do a feeding video, it kind of kills two birds with one stone. We do a fun little feeding video that attracts some folks over, and I get to talk about some of the ones that people have been asking about. So the one I just posted, it features my pure, one of my pure nada, which we actually got to eat on camera, I don't screw around a lot with the Pisolotheria species and the, the arboreal species with feeding. A lot of times what happens is I can't catch good footage of them because I don't tong feed. But in this case, she was sitting right out on the edge of the enclosure, right out in the open. I tossed a couple to her. She grabbed them. Billy got some amazing footage. I got my little G. Rosea, who is pushing nine, I think almost 10 years old now. She's about two, a whopping two inches. But I, I got her to eat, which is awesome because she's one of the ones who can be finicky and sometimes shy away from prey items when I go to do a feeding video. We got the Formictibus species by Ahibe. We got my Lasiodoridus polycuspilatus, which is a gorgeous spider. Uh, what is it? Peruvian blonde, I think. And I got some shots of her to post up on Instagram several weeks ago. Forgot to put them up, but I got some ability. Well, I didn't get some. Billy got some amazing footage of her. We got Theraphosinized species Roaton. I had some folks that asked me for an update on that one, even though I just did a rehousing not that long ago. So we updated on her. We got her out and about. We got the poster child for this one. This was my thumbnail, my Zenestis Intermedia, who just molted and became one of the most beautiful spiders I've ever kept. You have to see it to believe it. Oh my Lord. I love purple. She's got like this purplish pink carapace. The legs are this deep, femurs are deep black, the kind of trail off to almost like a bluish 
tinged to them. Just an absolutely stunning spider. And she's big now. She's pushing about five and a half, six inches or so. So pretty good size spider. Billy got some amazing shots of her eating. We have my Theraphosa Blondie, one of mine that's going to be getting a rehousing pretty soon. We caught that one. My Formictopus Aratus, Cuban Gold, not Cuban Bronze. A, the thing is not, this one drives me nuts. So I hate common names. A lot of people call them the Cuban Bronze. If you look at a Formictopus Cancerides, a lot of those have, or Adachromatus, have what looks like a bronze appearance. The P. Aratus look gold. They look like somebody sprinkled gold all over them. And the Latin word for gold is actually... Aurum, Aurum, Aratum. See the connection there? So I have to, it drives me nuts because everybody will come on and go, it's not the, unfortunately, it's not the Cuban uh, bronze or gold, it's a Cuban bronze. No, it's going to be Cuban gold. I refuse to call it Cuban bronze. So Cuban gold, because they are gold, they are beautiful. It is a, an amazing looking spider. And again, I, I, more props to Billy. She did an amazing job on this video getting these really good shots. We got my Tlilocatl Voggins on there. She just molted, looking beautiful. It's just something about a sleek black spider that just really is amazing. We've got my Zenestis species bright, which you can tell, especially when you compare to the Zenestis Intermedia, much paler, almost brownish pink legs, carapace pink, like just, again, the Zenestis species, just amazing spiders. I get, I've said this many, many times, but I like to call myself on it when I'm a dingus, and me avoiding those for years was just ridiculous. Boy, did I miss out. We have Formictopus species Salinas that is looking very much like the Formictobus species green femurs with the kind of golden carapace, the green femurs. We'll see as time goes on. I've ever heard from other people that seem to think those are the same species. So it means I basically spent an exorbitant amount of money for a sling of a species that I already had four or five of. Welcome to Formictobus, folks. And then we have Zenestis species tenebris or tenebri. Beautiful spider growing a little more slowly than my other ones, but gorgeous nonetheless. I believe this is the one that people think might be Zenestis monstrosa. Is that it? Monstrosa? Hopefully I pronounce it correctly. And then we ended it off with my P. Antonis. Not sure which form she is. I know there's a couple versions of P. Antonis. There's the true ones. I think the Peruvian are the ones everybody's after. I doubt it's that one, but we got her. So some great footage if you're looking to see some of the spiders that I keep and some of the ones that I don't fo uh, focus on all that much. And um, again, just a fun video. And I was in a good mood. Sometimes I do these feeding videos and it's like, I don't want to say they're forced, but I don't have a lot to say. This was one that we were just having a good time, Billy and I up there Saturday morning going through them. Kind of, there's one point in the video and I'll call myself out on this where I was picking up one of the containers to put it on the table so that we could film it. And before we started filming, I realized I had these wireless mics that clip on to your collar or the collar of your shirt. And I found that what happens is they start to basically, they're supposed to be right up against your, your body for them to work appropriately. But what ends up happening sometimes is I'll bend over and it'll fall away from my body. So the the top microphone part, picture it coming out as an angle from your body, and sometimes it'll stay that way. And what happens is when I go to do the edit the videos later, my voice becomes watery when that happens. It's kind of picking up Billy's mic. It's picking up mine. I hate the way it sounds. Very unprofessional sounding. So I try to make sure that it stays where it's supposed to. So before the video was shot, I said to Billy, do me a favor. To add to the list of things you already do that's way more difficult than what I do during these videos, can you just every once in a while keep an eye on it? And if you see that thing coming away from my neck, just let me know so I can fix it. 
So when I bent down, it pulled away from my neck. Billy saw it, and she tried to pull the back of my T-shirt gently to make sure it pulled back against my skin. Well, all I felt was this little, like, light skittering across the back of my neck and thought something was on me and exclaimed something you shouldn't exclaim on a video during it. So we had a good laugh on it because I thought something was crawling up my neck. The other day, I was feeding the tarantulas up here. An hour later, I felt something in my, on my neck and in my hair. I'm like, what is that? I reached. It was a cricket. It had hitched a ride on me. and had been on me for over an hour. So we had a good laugh there. I bleeped it out so people wouldn't hear me say terrible things. But a, a good moment. And I think a good video overall because we were having a really good time with it. Sometimes I'll admit and... Billy's been great with this. I will go Saturday morning. She's in the middle of doing something. Hey, you want to record a video? She always goes up there. But I think there's probably some times where she doesn't feel like doing it. I know there's times where I just, we start recording. I'm not feeling it. This was one where we were feeling it. So anyway, normally don't promote the videos on here. But if you want to check it out, check it out. I'm done talking. I'm going to go hopefully walk my dogs. have been pouring here. I don't know if we'll be able to walk them in the pouring rain. That'll do it for this one. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you're having a great Sunday. We'll catch you all next time.